do sit down. We're just about to have some tea. Ladies and gentlemen, please do not panic, but scream. Scream for your lives. Hey up weirdos, the kettle's boiled, welcome to Tea for Terror, where we take a favourite horror film and dissect it over a nice cup of tea. I'm your host Andrew Graves, and hopefully my guest for today will soon turn his evil into an orgy of bloodshed. Welcome Neil Kulkarni. Hello there Andrew, thank you. How are you doing, mate? I'm doing fine. Um, all the better for talking about this particular film that we're going to talk about. Because, I mean, inevitably, of course, it meant that I had to revisit it. It has been a while since I fired it up, and oh, what a joy it is. Yeah, yeah, I mean, well, obviously we'll get to it very shortly. It is, it is uh, yeah, it, it's kind of like Christmas, bonfire night, New Year, Halloween, <laughs> everything wrapped up in one package, this film. It, they, they, they chuck everything at the screen, don't they? It's just it, it is a sensory assault this film without a doubt um you get a contact high from it so it's been delightful revisiting it yeah yeah i mean definitely and we'll, well, i think we'll plow there's, there's so many things we can plow into with this film so uh yeah so mm-hmm. uh have mm-hmm. you been keeping busy uh just recently I have been keeping busy, um, although I'm sort of in semi-retirement mode at the moment, which suits me absolutely fucking fine. <laughs> I've, been, I've been, well, no, not semi-retirement, how can I put it? Um, I've moved out, and it's, it's consequently put a bit of a wodge my way. Not a big wodge, but enough to sit on my arse for a little bit. Um, lockdown was very tough. Um, not mentally or anything. I have loads of, like an idiot, like a lot of teachers, to be honest with you. I took on every single bit of work I could. So I was like zooming like nine hours a day or something stupid like that. Really unhealthy. Um, so it's nice to just do a little bit of teaching work. I ditched a kind of administrative role as well. So basically, I go teach and I go home. I don't take it home with me, do you know what I mean? So I'm in, a, I'm in an all right place at the moment. The writing work's kind of trickling in. Eventually, when Universal Credit, you know, sort of realise I'm being a lazy sod, I'll have to give myself a kick up the arse and, and, and do a bit more. But at the moment, I'm very much enjoying just moving into this new place, um, kind of getting the house sorted in the way I want it and taking it a little bit easy, you know? Why not? Yeah, I think I'm the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a long way from a semi-retirement. Um, I'm, I'm, I, it's, the thing with me, it's kind of like, I'm always, I, as a freelancer, it's always like, I want to enjoy the summer and I want to enjoy Christmas. But it's also yeah, yeah. the most stressful time for freelancers because no fucker ever gets back to you. You send an invoice out and it's kind of like, I yeah, know, we'll pay I you know, when yeah. I get back, when I've done partying. So, yeah, it's kind of where I'm at at the minute. But it'll work out in the end. They see, they... No doubt. It will. I mean, that's that. That is the uh, elemental kind of duality of freelancing in it. All that freedom, uh, no security. Yeah. Um, but um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is it. It, it, it. I must admit, I'm enjoying basically spending summer in my pants, basically, or my dressing gown, <laughs> doing very little. But of course, eventually, that comes and bites you in the ass because then you realise, oh shit, how am I going to eat this month? So, yeah, summer yeah, summer yeah, yeah. is tough. And then, yeah, like you say, beyond anything else, you're then chasing up bloody accounts payable for everything. So, yeah, um, yeah, I've got to get busier, basically. But, you know, I mean, look, I'm doing this, for, uh, this podcast, which I've never <laughs> done before. So I count that as uh, getting busy. 
cool. Okay, so uh, I, I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of people will know you through via your writing, and obviously being an ex melody maker man, and I know you still do mm. a number of different sort of writing jobs, and and I think what anybody knows about you is that you know you are, and you I think you're constantly described as this. You're one of the most passionate writers about music, um, and I think what's what's most impressive for me is that I think that a lot of us lazy buggers who are in sort of 40s and 50s kind <laughs> yeah, of forget yeah. about new music. Yeah. You've always been a champion for new music. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, a culture, you know, culture doesn't die. They, they, I, I'm, I'm very resistant to any notion of kind of golden ages, you know, and, and kind of that, you know, you, you get this in both film and music, to be honest with you. And as, as we'll probably explore, there's a lot of kind of mirrors between uh, the world of music and the world of film. And, and you know, it, it is tempting, especially when we get into our frail dotage like we are, Andrew, um, that, that, you know, oh, it was all better back then. But, you know, it, it really wasn't. And kind of retrospective articles, particularly about the period in which I was writing about music initially, Initially in the 90s you know that all the degree and nuance of things gets kind of shaped gets kind of driven out so you know say night is music it was all about grunge and Britpop apparently well no it wasn't you know what I mean and and like right now it's very tempting and, and an awful lot of people are saying this our oh, music's not as good as it used to be well look I was there in the 90s and I remember there was an awful lot of shite there as well you know what I mean so the, these kind of golden ages I would always attempt to resist them I mean if anything for me the current access we have to music and the panoply of things that we're given and the way that we can basically access music in a way that to a certain extent bypasses the music industry I would actually argue we're living in a golden age for music. I, I, I am dazzled by the choice and, and the amount of great stuff I hear every week so the notion of just kind of buttoning it about that is impossible the notion of sort of saying oh things were better back then is, is nonsense because they weren't and, and I actually think in terms of the amount of amazing music that I'm hearing from all over the world right now in, in 2023, um, I think we're in an amazing position for music. We're in an extremely difficult position to be a musician and also, of course, to be a critic. But in terms of the music that I can write about, um, I'm, I'm regularly astonished in a way that, you know, uh, has never happened. Because ultimately, you know, any of us who write about culture are fans, hopefully, first and foremost. Um, and as a fan, I think we're in a golden age right now. So the, the thought of not writing about all this amazing shit that I'm hearing every week is just anathema to me. Granted, I can't find anyone to run my shit, but, um, you know, this is what <laughs> Substack and things like that are for, um, to get that stuff out there. Because the, 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 otherwise, the culture will just sort of ossify, and it will just ossify around a kind of very predictable canon. I think things at the moment are tremendously exciting especially in terms of the old power games of music you know the old uh, the, the the parochialism of it the patriarchal nature of it the the racial kind of the white bias of an awful lot of the music industry over the years that i've been working uh, in the publishing industry um you know the the current age gives us a chance to just just bypass all of that um, so I, mean, I remember when the internet started, everyone was boo-hooing about the death of the music. I mean, big fucking boo-hoo. You know, the music industry were those that gave Robbie Williams 80 million quid. You know, why should I care about the death <laughs> of the music industry? Um, I think we're in, a, we're in a wonderful time as a listener. What I would hope in coming years is that we find ways 
that musicians can survive because it's incredibly difficult to make a living out of this malarkey. And, you know, this not only applies to the people who make music, but applies to us who write about it. It's incredibly difficult to, to make a living um, when, you know, why pay a pro when you can get a kid to do it for free? It's the old thing, isn't it? But um, I think we're in a golden age right now. So that'll never stop. I mean, there's always something. And it's not even stuff sent to me by the industry. It's stuff that you just discover, you know, through social media, through other things. There's too much good shit out there for me to stop writing about music. It will perennially and always be an obsession of mine that I have to write about. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I kind of feel the same about film mm. and, and cinema, or certainly in terms of horror films. Yeah. Because, I mean, yeah, obviously, the 20th century... Um, you know, it was it was fighting above its weight. There were, you, you could probably spend the next ten years just exploring the twentieth century in terms yeah, of horror yeah. films. But that doesn't mean to say that some of the best horror films ever made haven't been made in this century. Indeed. You know, and I think if you look at stuff like Alice Lowe's Revenge, or you look at Field in England, or Hereditary, or Midsummer, you know, these are just these are just incredible films. And I think, and it's this, and I think one of the you know, I'm cancelling a lot of people who's potentially going to listen to this podcast now. But I think one of the problems with horror and horror films is that there tends to be a lot of kind of cult horror clubs yeah, on yeah. Facebook or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And they tend to be perpetuated by people who I would argue aren't really into horror in terms of being open about it. What they want is another version of the Friday the 13th box set. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah, this, yeah. Co this yeah, collector yeah. sort of thing. And and they ignore. I, I I remember a mate of mine, and he he does tattooing, and he was talking to a guy who was into horror films. It was tattooing, but this guy just would not watch new horror films. <laughs> and, and and he said he, the last thing he'd watched was <laughs> this is hilarious. He'd watched The Witch, right? But because obviously the logo for that film is kind of really weird. Mm. He said, "Oh, I watched this thing all the day called The Vivit." <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, and it's kind of thing you 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 end up combating that kind of that that narrow mindedness around horror films. You got to you got to keep open. Yeah, of course, this shit produced this. Yeah, stuff. yeah, it's fucking brilliant stuff produced as well. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that what what's happened is, is because you know, it's the glut. You know, that's the thing that people kind of like think, oh, everything's shit now. And it just isn't. I know, I know it, just, it perhaps becomes a bit more difficult to cherry pick the good stuff and find the good stuff. But the good stuff is definitely out there. And quite often that nostalgic attitude that, you know, things were better back then, even though they won't explicitly say it, an awful lot of people who say that about music, I suspect... Um, have similar sort of um, attitudes about politics in a way. Do you know what I mean? It, it, it's just, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. like whenever I'm on Facebook and I'm on some sort of retrograde uh, group, say talking about British comedy in the 70s or something like that, nobody can like enjoy porridge or, 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 or Till Death Us Do Part or, or whatever happens to the Lightly Lads without saying, they have to say it, don't they? And you know what I'm going to say. They have to say, you couldn't, get, <laughs> you couldn't make this anymore. You couldn't, you know. And it's just a nonsense. It's just a complete nonsense. And it also, there's this kind of plea, there's, it's almost kind of like feeling that old th things were authentic back then, you know, and they're not authentic now. You know, disregarding the fact that most of the great horror films, let's go back to horror films, sorry, but most of the great horror films were, were confections of their time and, and they yeah. were as, as piecemeal and kind of accidental and ad hoc as, you know, current horror production so you know I, I to me there's no yes i'm gonna of course love the old classics in horror and i think we're going to talk about one in a sense today but but 
No, I want new scares. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I want new scares. I don't, I don't, I, I can't just keep watching fucking Carrie or something for the rest of my life. <laughs> I, I need new stuff. And, and, and I think what's key as well also, sorry to wang on, but I think what's key as well is that what we can generally trace in both music and film, I think, is the, the increasing presence, not enough, but the increasing presence of people who have previously been marginalised from these cultures, you know? And, and their voices, their insights and their unique perspectives and their unique styles are crucial to, to an ongoing horror culture and an ongoing sort of interest in horror and you know this there's films being made in this millennia in this uh, century and in this decade actually that would not simply would not have got made um a long long time ago um you know people had to be guerrilla filmmakers in a sense for for quite a lot of horror history um to get their things made i'm not saying these people are now being welcomed into hollywood with big budgets or anything but you know it's a much more diverse and interesting horror scene now i think than than in the past although i'm still acknowledging the fact that a lot of those old things are absolute fucking classics okay so on that note then Mm. what is your What's your personal entry point into horror? Uh, well, I, you know, I mean, look, I was born in 72, right? And I think to a large extent, for most of us in horror, who actually, in a sense, grew up in a, in a pre-VHS age, there's that period in the 70s and the young childhood, really, while the, where the actual movies are out of bounds, you know, because of age restrictions at the cinema and they're simply on too late on the telly. So my first entry point into horror, um, you know, in that period, you get your horror kind of where you can and to a large extent it's reading at first that first fires my interest in horror. Of course there's those little horrific things you can choose as a really young child and read yourself that might start this, books like Chocky or something but there's also that literature you can steal off elder siblings that's really important as well. I mean sorry, this is a massive sidetrack Andrew, but I'll never forget that um, there was an annual that my my elder sister had in the house called Diane, it was a girls magazine and and it should never be forgotten just how fucking scary girls comics were in the late 70s and early 80s there was a cartoon in diane uh, that was called an in an english country garden it's a terrifying story about gnomes that kill an entire family um but i think that was the <laughs> first thing that that you know how horror puts images in your head you can't shake i think i think that was the one that really locked me into horror first it was very powerful as well in teaching me about notions of suggestion rather than explicitness and this is well well before i get to mr james or anything like that so by the time i'm six or seven i'm starting to watch you know fired by this interest in literature that touches on horror um i'm starting to watch my first actual horror movies and i'm begging to be allowed to stay up late to watch horror on the tv now in the very early 80s when i'm about eight nine ten um three things are hugely important in this regard there's a single and it was a single late night screening on itv of the 1979 frank langella dracula film um which i mean it's a film not watched or talked about enough i think um and and it's a film it comes out in 79 so it's coming out the same year as herzog's nosferatu and it's also coming out the same year as love at first bite with george hamilton you know (laughs) Uh, both of which somewhat obscured the frank langella dracula and frank langella played dracula on the stage for quite a long time and it's a film that 
that's passed into sort of almost obscurity. But I remember that first viewing on ITV with a real vividness. Not only because I was a kid for the first time watching an adult horror film, but also the lushness of the production, the eroticism of it. There was a particular scene that absolutely haunted me and kept me awake for days afterwards. The scene when Dr. Seward and Van Helsing opened the crypt of Mina Van Helsing is just terrifying when you're six years old, you know. Um, and it's an amazing movie that, that warrants revisiting, I suspect. The scenes involving Redfield are amazing. The killing of Dracula is unique also. And I, I couldn't do anything after I'd seen that film. That film paralyzed me. I mean, it affected me immersively, um, like nothing apart from music at the time. And sometimes I think I, I sought refuge in music because film was too much sometimes. I, I Film emotionally affected me at that age at a young age and I'll never forget and this is another side trap and I remember I'll never forget watching the version of Hunchback of Notre Dame uh, that Charles Lawton did um, and the moment just before he leaps off the tower and he goes why <laughs> I sobbed for fucking hours after that you know I, but after watching Dracula I couldn't sleep I couldn't go up the stairs <laughs> I, I couldn't put up with the dark the, but the bug was in for horror that film definitely had a big part of it simultaneously Hammer House of Horror started being broadcast um, on ITV oh, yes. um, two episodes in particular got to me massively well, you know I mean these were things that you know I had to I, I didn't really have to beg my parents to stay up late and watch this stuff they were very kind of okay with it um, but two episodes in particular Charlie Boy um, the yes. one with the African uh, figure in it and the two faces of evil of course they really got to me a lot and then and then, uh, simultaneously with that as well early 80s we're talking kind of 82-ish when I'm about 10 um, Central TV who uh, took over well that, that was the old ATV became Central TV and they started this demented late night strand of movies called Let's Fret Together um, and that was a real education it was a kind of mix of classics um, you know, I think that in that strand, it was the first time I saw The Omen, which rapidly became a massive obsession for me. But it was a really interesting mix because they showed kind of classics like The Omen. They showed Old Hammer and Amicus portmanteaus and, and, and single strand movies as well. But they also showed kind of American TV movies, things like Children of the Corn and Scream Pretty Peggy and, and, and Amityville and things like that. And by the by, the Amityville book um, and the Exorcist book were features of my young reading as well so these things this let's fret together it was on, it was on a lot like one in the morning so watching them had to be a very surreptitious thing but by 84 i think we had a vcr and so vhs became just an obsession for me in terms of I mean, in terms of anything else sticking the stickers on and labeling these things just like cassettes with music and i fundamentally gave myself a movie education via um my vhs recorder couple you know combined with some dipping into things like fangoria um literature accompanied this in the form of the pan horror anthologies as well um but it's funny really thinking back at how my obsession i, I had three three obsessions basically as a teenager um music film and literature and and my obsessions kind of mirrored each other with music you know, are not, you know how important it is when you're a teenager that you're doing your own reconnaissance with culture. So you're kind of finding out about 
contemporary stuff but you, you're also sent back to the classics you know because when you read about a modern horror film you might be pointed towards dead of night or something like that so with music i had the library i had the weekly music press to aid with that kind of reconnaissance that autodidact need to teach yourself about something you're obsessed with um you know, and it, you know, especially in the mid-80s, learning about old music via Coventry Library, which some blessed lunatic just used to get the most amazing music in there. But, you know, especially in the mid-80s, when one felt quite a lot that what was contemporary was missing what the past had, um, a lot of that reconnaissance was conducted via kind of late-night screenings of horror films and, and also a couple of, of video shops, which are just cathedrals when you're that age you know VHS changes everything I mean there, there were two video shops I used one was local and the owner was a film buff and he kind of knew my mum and dad so I couldn't really get out anything too grisly but he pointed me towards some good stuff that wasn't horror but also some good horror and another one which was perhaps more important when it comes to horror another video shop which was up near where my mate lived and it was basically run by this guy who was a disgrace basically he didn't give a fuck what he rented <laughs> and to who and we were like 10 12 you know but we were both in horror so we got maximum horror out basically we got like at least three horror movies every weekend and just plowed through them and of course when you watch i mean we're talking about the mid 80s here so something of a golden age even though i don't believe in those things you know but when you watch things like evil dead or texas chainsaw massacre or all of romero's films and palmer's films and cronenberg's films and craven's films and carpenter's films it just sets standards you know in your head as to as to as to what you love in horror but also it indicates what you like and what you don't like i i realize that to enjoy horror i think means enjoying uh, i'm realizing at this point anyway in the mid 80s that to enjoy horror properly i think means enjoying different types of horror and that's really important if horror was all the omen or exorcist, that kind of dread-inducing, sickening horror, um, I probably wouldn't have been into it. But, you know, you need your grand guignol. You need humour. Evil Dead 2, Fright Night, things like that. You need slickness, like, say, Near Dark, but you also need grubby Englishness, like Asylum. You need low-budget stuff, like Basket Case, um, and Bad Taste and Brain Damage. You need total gore-fests, like Reanimator, but you also just need things that are psychologically terrifying, like Hitcher. You need it all. And in the midst of all of those things, in my mind, um, is this film that we're going to talk about. Um, because the film that we're going to talk about is a film I kept getting out. And it was a film that combines, I think, all that's truly great about really unhinged 80s horror. Um, can I call the film a masterpiece? No. But <laughs> it's a wonderful slice of chaos. And and the crucial thing, right? And I'm, I am wanging on an awful lot, Andrew. You can cut a lot of this. But... Um, the crucial thing I loved in horror and that I still love and that I still look for in horror is a sense and, and it's a strange word to use but I can't think of a better word for it There's, is that my, the horror I love has to have a sense of gusto to it a sense that links back in a sense to true B-movie fun before the 70s made horror into blockbusters and also made horror somewhat portentous at times I like horror yeah of course i like deep and unsettling queasy horror that has that mr jamesian sense of really unhinging you but i love party horror i don't know how to describe party horror thing you know what i mean that the film that you watch with somebody because to me horror yeah. wasn't a thing that i watched alone much it was a film i watched 
with friends. And so consequently, I have an astonishing amount of affection for absolute dog shit movies like Howling 2. Um, <laughs> just because there's so Jeez. many... Just because there's so many great laughable moments. But also there's, you know, like the film that we're going to talk about, it, it won't shake your soul or break your heart, the film that we're going to talk about, but it will make you laugh like a drain. But it will also crucially make you wince, make you turn your head and have you have those occasional mouth agog moments. So um, I'm really glad we're talking about this film because to me it crystallises, you know, my first kind of moments of really realising that horror wasn't just another genre that I was going to be into. Um, it was probably going to be the preeminent genre of film that I was going to be interested in. Excellent. I, I think there's a couple of things there. I think that, you know, I think that idea of horror you know i grew up i'm a little bit older than mm. you i think so when i grew up in the 70s it's that idea of horror films for a lot of it it was like you say kind of out of bounds yeah. there were those fantastic double bills in the 70s and 80s which were just a godsend yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. later on you had things like movie drain much later mm, on mm. but i think it was that pre-vhs time when um like you say, you, you, you couldn't own these things. Yeah, 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 yeah. So in, in a way, they became more special. And I think one of my uh, entry points was, uh, and I'll say this again and again as we do these podcasts, but it's just, um, it's the Alan Frank, the movie Treasury of Horror Films. Right, right, It was right. the fact that a lot of those pictures from that book, mm -hmm. I was obsessed with it. Oh, gotcha. That I, 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 that you, you probably wouldn't. You know, some of those films I probably didn't see till 10, 15 years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they weren't going to show up on BBC Two or whatever, no. you know. So it was this idea of, you know, the first time I ever saw that that image from Freaks in that book right. just, just blew me away. Yeah, yeah. It's like, what the hell is this? Yeah. And I knew that I probably, I, at that point, I'd be like, well, I'm never going to see this film. Mm. I'm never going to see it. Obviously, it came on BBC Two and Channel 4 a little bit later. But at that time, it was like this mystical thing. Yeah, yeah. So there, uh, there is something about that intangibility of some of those films, you know. Too right. But obviously, because I mean, uh, 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 I remember, you know, one of the games that you play as a. I mean, it, it cannot. I, I don't want to say that kids need this bark at all. Kids are fine. Leave them alone. But you know, Sunday boredom. You know, Sundays were really <laughs> fucking boring in the seventies, right? You had nothing to do, so you read what was in the house, and and you know, there might, if you were lucky, there would be some Reader's Digest paranormal type shit about Borley Rectory in there that would have would have piqued your interest in horror as well. But I remember a game that I used to play idly. You know, you get the Argos catalogue, and and you flick through it, and you touch everything that you want. And <laughs> I remember pre VHS and pre Laserdisc actually. Um, they used to sell movie projectors in Argos and I was always fascinated by the image of the movies that you could get because there was only about three or four movies you could get for this uh, movie projector and one of them was The Devil Rides Out and, and you know it, it was just oh god I've got to see that film and as a kid actually you're elephant like in as much as you don't forget a fucking thing you remember everything so yeah just just seeing it, it, it reminds me actually what you were just saying about that book that, that showed you so many different horror films and freaks included there was a book that I got used to renew endlessly from Coventry Central Library which was uh, I think it was a Paul Gambaccini book actually 100 greatest albums ever made and it was a load of critics just voting and you know I remember flicking through that am I going to be able to walk into HMV tomorrow and buy a copy of Trout Mass Replica no of course not I can only afford about five records a year but 
it it those records i was just like i've got to fucking hear that i've got to hear this as well and I, you know those kind of launch pads are really important and then you spend your teenage years in reconnaissance chasing all of this stuff up um so yeah it it it, it it's amazing um I'm glad I, I <laughs> it's weird, you know, because my education, yeah, I was at school, don't get me wrong, but my education was this, was was standing in bookshops, you know, reading books that I couldn't afford, just going to record shops, just looking at objects that I really wanted that I'd never be able to afford. This is your education if you're into culture. Um, it's difficult because I teach journalists now, you know, and it's kind of, sort of I, I think the best thing that you can do really at that age is be curious and be busy and um, I think that helped okay so uh, we're going to go into the film for this episode then and the film that we're going to look at is Demons from 1985 directed by Lamberto Barber and co-produced by the legendary Dario Argento the preview you are about to watch is for a movie that is unlike any you have ever seen before. It is for a movie that goes beyond temporary fear to everlasting terror. It is a movie called Demons. Yes, the demons are coming, and they're coming for you. The Neil. When did you first come across this film? Okay, well, I'm in a video shop in about 1986, I think, or 98. Yeah, 1986, I think. And um, I'm 13. And, um, I mean, look, the, the cover of films was utterly vital at this point, you know. Um, you could get, you, you could, of course, get out of dud, but you could be, you could fall down amazing rabbit holes just by the strength of covers, uh, the cover of a, of a yeah, VHS. And the cover of Demons um, instantly gets you. I mean, obviously, one of the things that you, that's delightful as a teenager as well, because you know what teenagers are fucking like, they like spotting errors, they like being smart asses. is that, of course, when you end up watching Demons, you realise that that moment that's on the front <laughs> cover barely happens at all. You know, it happens for like about three seconds. Um, but no, the, the cover got me in 86, and, and we got it out, we took it, we took it back to my mate's house, um, I mean, this was a properly dodgy video shop. We were like 12, 13. He, he absolutely should not have been renting this to us. But he, he'd rent us anything. I mean, he rented my mate, who was the same age as me. You know, just pornography, basically. Um, so massively inappropriate. But, um, you know, we, we also had a similarly blessed, um, awful guy in the middle of town, actually, in Coventry at that time, in a place called Intershop, which was the future of shop. You know, it's like a load of stores. He... he, he um, <laughs> he would sell alcohol to pretty much anyone so our Saturdays you know we'd kind of like go to winter shop get four cans of lager each or whatever go up the park smoke a bit of soap bar drink these cans throw up um, go back to my mate sells via this video shop and um, my mate who actually I mean <laughs> is so his man he um, he had a quadraphonic <laughs> he'd nicked his brother's car stereo and hooked it up in his bedroom and he used to listen to Venom and Iron Maiden and he used to make samurai swords in, in metalwork and stuff at school and we'd go to the woods and chop up shit anyway it was that kind of thing but yeah we got demons out and although we kind of hooted through it because an awful lot of it is very very amusing um, something about that film meant that we kept getting out and not just to laugh at it um, there's 
skill in that movie, but um, it, it, it as as a sensory experience for a teenage boy, it's got everything you could fucking want because the music's just shrill and kind of metally, apart from the soundtrack, which is is its own wonder. But um, you know, and and it just had everything we want or everything that we liked in horror. Now, I want to stress. Yes, we knew it was directed by Lumberto Bava. I think I had a vague idea who Dario Argento was, because I think by then I'd probably watched Suspiria. But, but you know, these connections are only things that you kind of realise after the event, in a sense. It was, you know, because there's no... You can't, <laughs> uh, you, you can't just get on your phone and check who these names are, you know what I mean? And, and, yeah. and, and it's very doubtful that you'll actually find a film encyclopedia or a Halliwell's or something that mentions people like Lamberto Bava. Um, and, you know, yes, if you were lucky and you were strolling through WH Smith and they felt like it that day, there might have been an issue of Fangoria in there or something like that that you could get. But, you know, I didn't... Music was my obsession, so I bought music magazines. I didn't really buy horror film magazines. But, um, yeah, it was the cover that got me. And, and, and that's... I was about 13 when I first watched this film. And even though, of course, this film is not for 13-year-olds, it absolutely freaking is for 13-year-olds. It's the perfect thing to watch when you're, when you're a teenage boy because it's... I mean, for want of a better, more reductive description, it is sex and violence, basically, this film. It's gory as fuck. And... and it's got strange sexual elements to it as well, and and just a <laughs> just a luridness, you know, a lure, an impoliteness that that that's wonderful if you're a teenage boy. There's a, there's a great uh, line in the film that one of the characters says towards the end, where she just says, "It's it's just walls." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, trying to get out. Yeah, yeah. It's just walls. And it's just like what a, what a brilliant line that is. What a just horrific thing. It's just walls. Well, I mean, Fantastic. this is because the plot of this film really it, it, the plot is done within the first ten minutes, really. Okay, so yeah, <laughs> well, it's kind of a plot. Um, so there is kind uh, of a plot. The the first thing we notice in this film is that we're in Europe, right? It's a very European yes. film. Uh, and what we first encounter is a, a sort of a, a, a random group of people, in, in, a, in a sense, get invited to a screening of a film and well I mean what actually happens I mean let, let, let's really dive deep into it we, we um, while riding the subway to class music student called Cheryl who's played by Natasha Hovey she's given a free pass to a movie theatre by a silent kind of man who's wearing a metal mask it turns out later of course I mean I didn't realise this at the time but that's that's um Michael, indeed, indeed, and it's uh, this is the thing. Much, much later on, you know, um, as I get older, these names who mean nothing to me age thirteen. You know, they start gaining increasing importance. But uh, anyway, um, this music student Cheryl, she persuades her classmate Kathy to skip class and go to this this film that she's been in, invited to with these kind of weird invite cards. Um, when they get to the cinema, they meet two young men, George and Ken. <laughs> the names, man. Um, and they meet this strange array of people in the lobby of this this rather deco-ish cinema. Um, a, a really odd bunch of characters, actually, a sort of random group of pa patrons um, who are going to see this film. And, um, yeah, it, 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 once they're in the cinema, um, 
strange shit starts happening and, and and really the rest of the film in a sense is is the story of these guys entrapment in this cinema and the horrible shit that starts happening to them um they um it, the other attendees apart from these two couples basically because they're kind of pairing off it's not like a double date cheryl kathy george and ken the other attendees there's a kind of there's a, a extremely stereotypical black pimp um, <laughs> called Tony, played by Bobby Rhodes, and his two girlfriends. Um, one called one Rosemary, played by the amazing Joretta Joretta, who's always amazing in everything she's ever in, and also her friend Carmen. Um, there's a kind of cranky husband, an old guy who, you know, is just a miserable old bastard called Frank and his bitter wife called Ruth. There's another young couple called Tommy and Hannah. Hannah's played by Fiorio Argento, actually, Dario Argento's daughter. And there's a blind man called Werner and his daughter Liz. And they're all sort of milling around the lobby and they're all kind of wondering, you know, what, why were we invited here? And at this point in the lobby of the theatre where there's an amazing motorbike which they focus in on for some reason, yes, that becomes important later, um, Rosemary, um, essentially a prostitute, I think, we're meant to think she's a prostitute anyway, she tries on this kind of prop demon mask that, that's hanging on a kind of mannequin. And it leaves a cut on her cheek, which will become very, very important. Um, Kathy's kind of upset that they've come to see a horror film, but George and Ken offer to protect her. And then we go into the cinema, and they start watching this film. Now, the thing is with demons, right? There is a big film within a film thing about this film. It's, it's a, in a modern age, we would call it meta. Um, and in this film within a film that they're watching... And the film, the thing is, the film within the film is fucking scary as well, to be honest with you. It, it, it's effective little bit of uh, film within a film. In the film that they're watching, a group of college students ride their motorbikes to the ruins of an old castle rumoured to be the burial place of Nostradamus. And one of the characters in the film that they're watching puts on a demon mask, identical to the one in the lobby, and it cuts his face. And at that precise moment, the scratch on Rosemary's cheek, who's watching this film, begins to, to throb unpleasantly. And she goes to the bathroom to take care of it. And, but instead of, you know, in, in perhaps the first sight of the really unpleasant fluids of this film, <laughs> the fluids are fantastic. <laughs> it's not just blood in this film. It, it, it's gross. It, there's a lot of pus in this film isn't there yeah uh, exploding out of people and and occasionally drenching them occasionally they're, they're drinking this pus as well it's kind of very very gross in in a in a way that obviously appeals to teenagers um and appealed to me massively as a 13 year old but anyway rosemary she goes to the bathroom and in a brilliant scene she tries to take care of it dabs at it with a, with a tissue but instead she transforms um into the first demon in the film and mirroring the character's transformation in the film that they're watching Carmen, Rosemary's friend comes and checks you know, why she's taking so long and then you know, she gets mauled by Rosemary and before you know it um, everyone uh, you know, everyone's in danger because badly injured Carmen crashes through the movie screen just as 
the possessed characters in the movie that they're watching start hacking at each other she crashes through the movie scene uh, movie screen um, and she's being turned into it she's transforming into a demon as well and before you know it yeah all hell breaks loose basically and the rest of the film is fundamentally watching um, really really bad things happen to everyone that we saw in the lobby at the beginning um, and yeah there, 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 there is that del- I think the meta-ness of the film the fact that they're watching a horror film in which the same things are happening in the horror film that are happening to them I, I, I didn't like watch this film as a 13 or I think oh wow that's really deep that's really saying something about watching and, and horror and things like that um, but it's really really effective the, the way this happens and the way that Carmen crashes through the movie screen is a real moment and also Rosemary's transformation in the bathroom is truly horrific um, yeah. it, it really is um, because Juretta Juretta is a great actress and, 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 and the way she does that scene the, the body horror of it is hugely, hugely affected. I just also wanted to point out, in the lobby, we also get our first glimpse of this strange usherette, um, played by Nicoletta Elmi, who, who was, a, who was a, I believe, a sort of child actress, in a sense, who, who was in a handful of Italian horror pictures in the early to mid-70s. Um, but here she's a lot older. She's sexy as hell in this film and of course that's going to pique a teenage boy's interest as well because um, because you know um, it, it yeah we needed that in the film as well so yeah but by this point in the film and we're literally what we're probably about 20 minutes into it or half an hour into it <laughs> um, the the plot has kind of happened now um, you know the, the the setup has happened if you like and, and what's going to happen in the rest of the film is just yeah utter motorcycle riding mayhem um i also sort of need to point out i think that i've said before that this film is an assault on the senses yes it's an assault visually because it's very lurid it's very grimy and it's very gory i mean fuck me the gore is astonishing it's one of those films that just seems to surge on its own energy it's it's so cocainey you practically get a co- uh, a contact high from it but everything's intense the meta film itself um you know um also by the by in this first 20 minutes we're also introduced just totally randomly to this gang of dirty street punks who are driving around outside the the, cinema you get the impression that they they were possibly mates with the gang that's in the return of living death (laughs) oh indeed yes yes absolutely and there's also a very sort of sexually violent moment where i i think the guy doesn't he 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 puts cocaine on on a woman's yeah, breast and he gets his, with a razor blade and and you know it's an intense movie man but beyond all of this visual stuff that's very intense i have to stress that you know sonically as well the soundtrack um to demons is an intense experience you've got this mix of kind of I was startled, I remember watching it. My God, these are pop hits, because it's got like White Wedding by Billy Idol on it, (laughs) and We Close Our Eyes by Go West. Uh, It's got a lot of metal. It's got tracks by Accept and Saxon and Scorpions, which really fits as well, Motley Crue as well. Wouldn't be an 80s metal film without a bit of Udo from Accept. (laughs) Well, no, exactly, exactly, (laughs) balls to the wall. But no, the thing is, uh, accompanying all of these actual tracks is a brilliant soundtrack, I think, by Claudio Simonetti. It's just wonderful. The the, the synth tones of it, the darkness of it, um, captures you, you know, from the the very first moment. And, and, you know, I, I cannot, for those who haven't watched it, 
I, I can't stress how assaultive this film is, how adrenaline driven it is. It's gloriously perverse. It's filled with pus and gore, and it's it, it, it's it just develops this momentum from the off. Um, well, lots of films from that era, you know, lots of cheesy horror films. They kind of had this, you know, somewhere on the blurb on the back of the VHS is going to be a, an all hell breaks loose. It yeah. literally does yeah, in yeah. this film. It, 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 it really does. It really does. Yeah, and and, I mean, and when, by the time you've got to the part where the fucking helicopters crashing through <laughs> the roof. Like, what else can they chuck at this? Yeah, and, and and crucially, it does have that that very Italian thing of of you know it's gleeful about this. It, it, it you know in the film that they're watching, the movie within a movie, um, when it reaches its kind of first very violent moment, uh, you, you get this shot of the screen, and you get this shot of this bloody knife plunging into flesh just repeatedly and and you know it, it's got this this glee about the, the horror that that's just delightful and and you know there's there's so many just moments look you can laugh at this film but if you if you only laugh at this film jesus um seek help um <laughs> the, the, there should be moments right when you're watching demons where you do wince where you kind of can't look because the gore although it's quite gag laden gore you know there's quite a lot of fun being had um it is it is very very gory and and you know the 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 fluids i, can't, I keep coming back to the fluids but it's not just blood <laughs> it's not just blood and it's, it's not it's the green pus. The, it's know, the green pus, and, and and the substances. They've not got that claymation feel that certain substances in say Evil Dead had. That there's just it's a proper splatterfest, um, and it's effects driven. This film quite a lot. It beca it becomes basically the first sort of twenty odd minutes. Yes, it's a setup, but from about half an hour in, you just you're on a ride. You know, it's it's like you're on a yeah. roller coaster. You're on this ride and the just out of control momentum of the film and it the, the sort of indulgent gore almost I, I you know the 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 street punks outside are snorting cocaine but i wouldn't be surprised if there was a fuckload of cocaine knocking around the set of this film because it's just got that feel to it um this vividness so what happens anyway um these, uh, you know, uh, the horrified audience, once Carmen's crashed through the screen and transformed into a demon, she rips Frank's throat out. It's a great scene. And then um, she strangles another patron. She gouges out the blind man's eyes. And then her and Rosemary, they just chase the rest of the audience members through the theatre. For some reason, all the exits have been boarded up. Um, and, and, and this is another delightful thing about demons. Nothing is explained. You know? <laughs> Absolutely nothing is explained. We don't get some... We don't really get a hint as to why these things are happening, uh, why this mask does that, or who the mask wa man was at the beginning. You know, there's a moment later on in the film where it, it, it kind of... Almost as if, the, you know, um, demonic transformation wasn't enough, and a demon actually... A, a sort of, like, strange dog-like demon springs out of someone's back, and you just accept it, because by that time time in the film you're just dazed with this thing you're kind of woozy with what's going on um so all of the exits have been boarded up and somebody hits upon the idea that basically maybe the film is the problem you know the film that is playing is somehow causing people to to become demons so the four protagonists who we met at the very beginning of the film they head up to the projection booth 
to shut it down and there's no one there and they smash the projectors and they barricade themselves in the balcony when they smash the projectors and the film fades there's a wonderful shot of the screen before it goes kind of completely dead of of one of the demons slowly looking up at you it's amazing and and then the blind man who's so, of course because he's blind has a unique insight as blind people always do in films like this um he tells them that the film isn't the source of evil it's the theater itself um and by now pretty much everyone has been transformed into a demon um people are being bitten a leg um people are vomiting blood all over the place but but at this point the four punks who we who we've sort of for some reason been dropping in on that one <laughs> we've not no idea why they're important but the four punks uh, who are, have got great names i mean one of them's called ripper one of them's called hot dog <laughs> one of them's called ba- baby pig and one of them's called nina um these four punks have been tooling around outside just getting high they managed to break into the theater um and and of course this means that the now demonified blind guy werner he slips out into the street you know starting a global apocalypse basically he attacks two coppers um hannah and tommy they try and crawl through a ventilator shaft but hannah's been transformed into a demon herself and kills tommy and believing that the punks are there to rescue them the survivors begin to tear down the barricades they've built between them and the demons but it just allows the demons to reach the balcony and attack them and then basically everyone except <laughs> Kathy and Cheryl and George and Ken just get slaughtered um, um, there's a strange moment as well that I will never forget the usherette that I previously mentioned when she finally gets killed with a prop sword there's a strange sort of like sexual nature to that death whereby the guy thrusting the sword in or she seems to be enjoying it it's really quite disturbing um yeah. And, and, you know, then, of course, a motorcycle gets involved. <laughs> um, George, uh, he rides a fully gassed up motorcycle, you know, the prop in the lobby. He rides through the theatre and hacks to bits a lot of the demons. That's a bit, I think, clearly influenced by a kind of evil dead thing. Um, there's an ash sense of glee to what he's doing there. And then, as you know, frequently happens, a helicopter crashes through the ceiling. <laughs> and George uses the propeller to kill the rest of the demons that's a fucking boss move that is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah very useful very uh, yeah absolutely uh reuse yeah a repurposed helicopter in terms of demon death and then he uses the kind of winch in the grappling hook uh that's in the helicopter to, to get on the roof and when he gets up on the roof the metal mask man from the beginning um attacks them but he gets killed when george stabs him right in the eye with a piece of uh metal oh god that bit's horrific and then yeah they make it to the street and we're near the end of the film george and cheryl make it to the street at least everyone else is pretty much yeah been infected now and they learn kind of on the street in the very final reel of the film that this demonic infection has kind of spread into the city which now kind of looks like a war zone really and they're picked up by this kind of survivalist guy and his kids in a pickup truck who have apparently, you know, they've got they've got a stockpile of weapons and tinned food, and they drive out of the city, and just you know, you think you do sort of think, oh well, you know, well that's leading into a sequel or something, um, 
But then, yeah, of course, final moments. Cheryl, it turns out, transforms into a demon, having been infected at some point in the theatre. And the, the survivalist guy's son guns her down. They leave her body in the road and drive off. And that's your demons. That is the film done. Um, and by then, you know, as a 13-year-old, you'll just fucking put that back on, you know, <laughs> because it's just chaos mayhem bedlam violence gore splatter sexuality metal music i mean what's not to like really in in 88 minutes as well yeah yeah it's nice <laughs> and tidy isn't it yeah yeah and and, and i think you know because i don't know if you know this this film in its initial phases was going to be an anthology film it's yeah be a yeah, yeah story yeah and then they kind of chucked some of those elements away but i think instead of telling three d you kind of do get different stories because they do throw everything on you know hmm. it becomes maybe not so much an anthology film but a film which is obviously a horror film but it's it's a zombie film as well yeah it's a yeah, yeah part giallo it's a supernatural argento film it's hmm. a fucking over-the-top zombie film it, it's mad max you know yeah in the last yeah. five minutes everything is thrown at this film Indeed. and i think i think what in terms of you know obviously graphically horror you know graphic horror wise it's 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 as you say it's on the money for a 13 year old kid or whatever mm, mm. uh but also you know as an adult looking at yeah obviously you're gonna laugh at this film as well but it looks fucking amazing oh, in gotcha. terms of yeah. the, you know i mean obviously this is lamberto barber um you know obviously you know for anybody who's into horror knows mario Bar mario mm, barber was mm. kind of the, the grandfather of kind of italian horror yeah, yeah. just and and, and 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 as much as lamberto barber does his own thing you can certainly see that you know both mario barber and dario Argento were very much influenced by oh. those kind of D disney sort of snow white type very much colors so. yeah and yeah. that is you know it's those greens and those sort of lilac sh you know lighting it's just it's 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 classic italian it's uh, and it's it's a really brilliant um because i think by this time you know when you get into the sort of mid to late 80s you, you it, was, it was kind of your italian court horror was kind of waning a little yeah, bit yeah yeah indeed, kind of indeed. Dying. but this was definitely a, a last hurrah and, and you know, also later on, you're getting kind of Michele Suave films as well, mm, mm. And, and people like Pupi Avati making Zeda. So there are there's still these things rumbling on, but certainly as a wider force, it was dying out. But actually, you know, this is you know, this is this and Demons too, just incredible yeah. sort of examples of the, the, the Italians are still relevant. Still Absolutely. Relevant. Absolutely, and you can you can even if you're not aware. I mean, as I wasn't aware at thirteen, you can actually retrospectively you can see the pedigree in a way because you know Barber's dad, of course, Lamberto Barber's dad's massively. I believe his granddad also made silent films as well, and and he you know Lamberto Barber is somebody who's obviously spent quite a large point part of his life on sets familiar with the movie making process and, and observing and watching and looking and learning and I, and I think the Argento production credit is really important as well obviously yeah. it, 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 I'm not saying it, it's like an Argento film but it has those kind of those kind of production values you know um, and, that, and that astonishing vividness of colour I, I think what's interesting about it though is that what 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 really endears this film to me is that it has all that pedigree it has that style and that that 
that sense of yeah that 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 visual sense but it there's also something just a bit unhinged about it there's also there's steely control in this film without a doubt in an almost argento way but there is just this this kind of freewheeling mayhem to it that I, I I haven't really found in many other films from this period. Um, you know, I, I, I was trying to think before coming on this that, of films that I would compare it with, and I genuinely don't think I can compare it to a film from the West. There are probably films... I mean, when I say the West, I mean from, from Hollywood, that is. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, for me, it's it's... It's one of my favourite. I know there's there's probably much much better. Um, you know, when I watched Argento films as a kid, when I watched things like um, I don't know Inferno or Tenebrae or, or and even when I watched Ruggiero di Ardato films, you know, if I watched Cannibal Holocaust or, or Zombie or any of these films, you know, that there were kind of moments when you know when you're watching something you've been told is a classic, say, whether you've been told you know this is a great film, and there are occasional moments where you, it's not that you think sat there thinking. Um, this is boring but you kind of I don't know there's no moment as a 13 year old it's really important there's not a single moment of boredom in demons there's not a single moment where you think oh it's it, it, it's pacing itself because it just doesn't it it just absolutely from about the 15th minute of this film it just goes from the goes for the jugular and and I think that just kind of unhingedness and that developed momentum it becomes cumulative um, that it kind of just it, it gets more and more intense the longer you watch it. Um, it, it it's 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 an amazing um, it, look. You're not gonna. This isn't a film full of life lessons or anything, you know. But it, it it's got this potent vividness to it that I've not seen in anything else. Um, and 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 I love the mix of sonics and the luridness of it. Um, but the style. That, that, that it's not cheap skatery this film it's not um it it, it it's it's beautifully put together there, there's probably um you know there's probably there, there would perhaps be better ways of doing this story perhaps but um it's exuberant and it's fun and it's hyper violent i really should stress the hyper violence of it um so yeah i mean I, it, it, it's one that i i i was so delighted to watch it again this week because i thought you know um oh maybe it'll be rubbish maybe you know it, it, it it's it will just be daft you know you've grown up a bit since you i'm grown up that much but you know you've grown up a bit since you're 13 maybe you're not going to enjoy it no i was hooting throughout and enjoying it and wincing and looking away from the screen and remembering so many great inexplicable bits um and, and it's interesting that you mentioned demons too because I, I there was actually quite a long gap between me watching demons and demons too um, because the the dodgy video shop didn't have Demons 2 in, so I ended up watching it much, much later. Demons 2 stands up as well, I would say. Yeah, it does. It really does. Both, both, it's a good double bill. Mm, very much so. Very much so. I, I mean, the, the thing is, I, I think with Demons, um, like a lot of those Italian cult horrors, it, 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 they really work in the same way that the reason a lot of those spaghetti westerns work. It's because you've got all these different influences. You obviously had Italian creatives, directors involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but a lot of the spaghetti westerns were initially they they had German money behind them. Yeah, yeah. And they were yeah. they were filmed largely in Spain. So you got these, but they were aimed a lot of the time at American audience. Mm, so you got mm. these different factors, and that's why it meant. And I think this 
you know, clearly this is play, you know filmed partly in in Berlin, yeah, and then it's yeah, yeah. aimed very much at an American teen audience. But then you've got these unmistakable sort of Italian influences totally. and, and and the way it looks and feels. Um, and, that's and a, think... that's a really interesting point about the the comparison you're making with spaghetti westerns, um, because yeah, I mean yeah, sorry, carry on. No, I, I was just going to say it's just because uh, I think part one of the things that I am obsessed why I like Italian horror films particularly is uh, and by horror films I extend that into sort of giallo stuff mm, as well mm. is because um, I I love the fact that particularly with Italian horror they had the laws the copyright laws were yes. completely different in Italy so the idea you can the, the whole sequel thing in Italy is incredibly complicated you know mm, it, mm. It, 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 if you look at something like say you've got you know getting back to Dario Argento again he takes uh, George uh, you know George Romero's version of Dawn of the Dead and he repackages it for the Italian market gives it a different title mm-hmm. re-edits it set, set, sends it out now that becomes such a hit in Italy that then they immediately um, sanction a sequel an unofficial sequel which becomes zombie flesh eaters or right, zombie right, two, right, right, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. then so you've got these these parallel sort of zombie films running across, which aren't actually linked, but in Italy, because you because you can sell them as sequels, it just creates this whole sort of subgenre, which makes yeah. no sense. I mean, when you get to the later stages of the zombie flesh eaters franchise, I think zombie five was made before zombie four. It gets really complicated. <laughs> Yeah, and 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 and, so, and 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 I think with with this, so you've got demons officially, you've got demons, then demons too, mm. but then you've got Michele Suave starts making these other projects, which are intended initially to be demons three and four, yeah, yeah, which become the church and the sect, mm. and it, and I think in some um, areas they were actually packaged as demons three and four. It's right, incredibly right. complicated, but yeah, endlessly yeah. fascinating. Yeah, totally. I mean, and, and also another, just uh, tangentially, another uh, thing that ties it in with the spaghetti western idea that you're talking about is, is the bad dubbing that goes on. It's fantastic oh, on demons. That's, that's a cracking sort of mismatching going on. Um, but you know, I mean, the thing is, you know, you know, teenagers are very, very keen. They they love they love picking not fault making picking out faults, but they love spotting errors if you like yeah. in films. It's, it's part of the pleasure of film. But I've got to admit that even as a thirteen year old, that yeah, you might initially laugh at the dubbing, but very very rapidly you stop laughing really at that aspect of it. And it's just, I come back to that term that I mentioned earlier, gusto. This is done with such you know vibrant gusto you'd have to have a heart of stone to resist demons it's 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 wonderful but that's really interesting what you're saying about sequels um and and how how sort of italian horror quite often when when you'd get out of an italian horror in the mid 80s without any reconnaissance you know you wouldn't know what you were getting in a sense you did realize how much cannibalization of other films was going on but because because it was all done with with this this lovely B-movie joie de vivre, if you like. Um, you, you get some real classics out of that. Um, and I, I think, you know, I think any understanding of eight is horror in a global sense has to include demons because it, it, it's something of a... It's something, it's something of a pinnacle, I would say, of something. Um, and also, I think you're totally right. After Demons, as we get towards the late 80s and after Demons 2, which comes out in 86... This stuff does tail off, doesn't it? It does kind of 
I don't mean that the films get worse or anything, but I think as British VHS renters, if you like, this stuff starts disappearing. Demons is kind of a last hurrah for this stuff. And um, I recall the late 80s being a case of when I went to the VHS shop, it would be, I'd be confronted with either Hollywood horror or basically I'd be doing reconnaissance on old Argento stuff and old, old Bava stuff. And of course, by then, as you mentioned, things like Movie Drome are also reintroducing us to some of those old things so you, you could almost see demons and demons 2 as a last hurrah for this kind of film absolutely um have you any other thoughts on demons before we finish up um no i i don't have any more thoughts but i hope i've not put people off the film um it's just it's such fun this film what i would say is i think you'll get more out of this film if you watch it with somebody else or you watch it with a few people and I know that can be really annoying because the temptation when you're watching a horror film with others is to do that thing that you know you know you know when you go to a, a, a one thing I, I hate is going to see a film at a university like an art centre or something like that <laughs> because I know that if it's a genre film whether it's a western or, or a horror or something these people go and see these films to laugh they go to to show their cultural superiority in a sense you know i mean i remember watching unforgiven the clint eastwood movie um at the odeon in town and you know it was just watched normally and then it came back and it was at warwick uni or something and i went at warwick uni to watch it and the cunts were just fucking laughing um to prove they could see that this you know they wouldn't laugh if they went to see a merchant ivory film but oh it's a western so we can laugh at it um, uh, it can be annoying watching horror movies with others because quite often people want to diffuse the sense of horror that they feel. I don't think Demons... I think Demons is designed to be watched with others because it's so much fun and yet there will be moments when you look across at somebody watching it and they will, you know... I don't know if this is the same for you, Andrew, but all my horror-watching life... You know, there's that cliche of hiding behind a sofa or covering your eyes or something. That's not what I do when something is 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 really horrific to me i do this weird thing i cover my ears up um and i i i, I can't hear it you know what i mean if i can't hear it the visual imagery is always going to be okay um if i can't hear the sounds of, of, of whatever horrific shit is being shown i can sort of deal with it there are plenty of moments in demons where you will have your hand to your mouth you'll have your hand on your ears so so it it it's simultaneously just a ton of fun but it leaves images in your head that stick with you. And, um, you know, it's a film I, I want to return to time and time again because it's just... And, and I have to say, actually, if you've got a kid who's into horror or is starting out on their horror journey, if you like, uh, obviously not if they're fucking eight years old or something, but, you know, if they're like 14, 15, I think that is the ideal age to watch Demons because it's not so deep that you kind of you know question yourself or anything like that it's a ton of fun and yet it still gives you the jumps and the scares and the frights that you need so uh, you know uh, it w certainly wasn't the first horror film i ever watched but um i couldn't think of a better horror film to start your journey into horror than demons it, it's fucking great absolutely so it just remains for me to say no i need to like please 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 Follow us on our official uh, T for Terror Facebook page. We've also got a T for Terror Twitter page and Instagram. So please keep in touch 
um comment uh give us feedback or whatever that and give us reviews and things like that it helps us really really a lot thank you very much so uh just remains for me to say thank you to my guest neil kulkarni no worries Andrew. it's genuinely been a pleasure you know all i ever wang on about is fucking music so it's been delightful to write about uh, to think about make notes on and also talk about film and and you know this is probably jumping the gun but if you ever want me back um, oh, I'd love definitely. to do it again because there's so many amazing films, and I and I think actually, um, the eighties. I know the eighties is on endlessly foregrounded as a kind of you know golden age, and there's all the classics that we know from the eighties. But the thing about the eighties is there's hidden classics that I don't think enough people yeah. know about, and and you know they need talking about. So if you if you want me back, please have me back because I've I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, Andrew. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Neil. So. Remember to call round next time. Make yourself at home. You're probably dying for a nice cup of tea for terror. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future.